0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts, and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, A very good morning to everyone. Very big days on these markets, in foreign exchange, uh, in central bank policy, and of course, what's going on in the earnings season. These are your headlines. Investors giving a big thumbs up to Meta, otherwise known as Facebook, the stock rallying over 18 percent in extended trade as the social media giant tops first quarter earnings forecast. But the COO Sheryl Sandberg warns of clouds on the horizon.
1: We think while these times are challenging over the long run, we do have a very strong competitive advantage.
0: Standard Chartered hikes its income guidance for the year after reporting a strong start to 2022. But the lender remains cautious on COVID effects in China. We're going to hear from the CFO, Andy Halford, very shortly.
1: The dollar hits a 20-year high against the yen after the Bank of Japan decides to resist the rate hike in tightening cycle and keeping its ultra-loose policy in place. The euro hits its lowest level, though, against the dollar in five years. This as the block tells gas companies not to bend to Russia's demand to be paid for gas in rubles. Let's take a look at that U.S. market action stateside. A lot of earnings to digest and, of course, a lot of caution in the market. We saw a day earlier markets roiled by concerns around this COVID situation in China, the tightening cycle stateside, concerns around the geopolitics, and, of course, the inflation story and what you've got on markets now as they also waded through some of the earnings. A slight pop on the Dow, two-tenths of a percent matched on the S&P 500, but the Nasdaq again left out in the cold. This was the pain point for the market markets a day earlier and you can see a flat line almost tilting lower a big name stocks too on the move for the major markets it was Boeing to the downside for the Dow don't forget we had a lot of earnings crossing including from Boeing uh, the big movers though for the other major markets though we had Microsoft coming up with numbers after the bell a day earlier that was a bit of a prop for the likes of the S&P 500 one of the big movers to the upside alphabet, though, as we talk about big-name reporting stocks this week, it was a driver to the downside for the other two majors, for the S&P and the Nasdaq. But let's just take a look at Meta after hours. It was fascinating that there was such a huge focus on subscriber numbers. Again, uh, investors had focused on this with Netflix. There was concern in the markets that Meta could be the next shoe to drop on this front, that maybe it was not connecting with its audience. But very strong build-up, uh, better than expected on those subscribers on the eyeballs. So you've seen this uh, double-digit spike spike in the after hours numbers even though revenue was slightly underwhelming as we saw again the geopolitics impacting yet another company i want to take you to what we've got in terms of uh, the year-to-date performance for meta you can see uh, this is how it's been performing we mentioned it in the context of netflix because it was one of the other major fang plus stocks that have been traveling south by the 40 odd percent mark and you can see year-to-date down 47 odd percent before the moves that we're seeing in the after hours trade so let's just see how this uh, chart moves in uh, as the the daily session that starts to unfold later on today i want to taking the U.S. futures and the bearing that that has on markets, so don't forget there's a lot of different factors at play at this stage and you can see that the market is perched higher right across the board from the S&P to the Dow that's chasing 85 points this hour to uh, decent moves too on the Nasdaq.
0: Uh, Right, we've got a lot going on. I won't take too long because I know Andy Halford's waiting in the wings for us, so hang on a second Andy, we'll be with you in a moment. Uh, There are enormous moves going on in the foreign exchange markets, possibly historic moves going on. Let me tell you what the BOJ has done or isn't doing overnight. Uh, It has said it will maintain its support of the economy through its sizable stimulus program and zero interest rate program. In its latest April meeting, the central bank said it expects current price pressures to be transitory. Transitory. Isn't that interesting? That's long after the Fed gave up on that um, ludicrous assumption of transitory for its own economy uh, some stage last year. Rising to under 2%, it reckons, in terms of uh, inflation, which is, of course, the target 2%, and easing back to just over 1%. uh, 1 1.1, actually, over the next two years. The dollar is surging against a whole host of currencies, including this one. Every single level that is being breached is quite extraordinary at the moment. 130 seems just a whisper away up 1.1% on the dollar-yen at the moment. Let's show you the yields on the JGBs. Well, they have uh, promised to buy pretty much unlimited amounts uh, of JGBs uh, at the low low levels we're seeing at the moment. Uh, 0.25 being an implicit cap uh, on those 10-year JGBs currently trading 0.22. Um, dollar crosses across the board the euro trading with a 105 handle now a lot of people beginning to talk about parity it was only Gosh, a year or so ago, we were talking about 120 on the euro dollar. Apparently, there was a a trade going on here where actually Europe was going to surge and uh, the US and the dollar were going to decline. Well, what about that trade, everybody? The pound remains under enormous pressure as well, 125. This is about a couple of things going on uh, in these markets. I'll take a look at the Asian indices as well if you want to have a quick look at those. But we'll go back to the foreign exchange chat in a second. Right, the Nikkei is currently at 1.5%. So, uh, absolutely blithely uh, not worried by the fact, actually, for for many of their exporters, of course, this is good news. But if you're importing energy uh, in dollar, denominated assets, which, let's face it, on a global basis, the dollar is still the, uh, the measure of foreign exchange for uh, imports in hydrocarbons. Uh, you are still having huge import cost increases, and we've seen fiscal support being talked about once again uh, by the government in Japan as well. But Karen, I know we're going to very, very briefly chat about this before we get to Andy as well. I would say there's one number to me which is absolutely terrifying uh, for the Japanese, and that is 252. What does 252 mean? It is 252% is the debt to GDP that Japan has at the moment. If they let JGBs go in any way, shape or form, their refinancing on one of the largest debt to GDPs on the globe will look very, very interesting for a country which for the last decade We've been talking about their demographic issues as well. When they start uh, paring down those postal savings, what does that mean for Japanese debt levels? What does it mean for the appetite for owning JGBs at 0.22 percent?
1: BOJ is throwing down the gauntlet to the market, right? In these types of interventions, there's a view that the central bank cannot hold the line, but the daily interventions keeping investors, traders on their toes that they're going to be just as active in the market, it's sending a very strong message. Particular time when other central banks are going the opposite direction. That the other point here reminds me a little bit of that cap from the Swissie. Uh, We had the Swissie as uh, clearly a a very strong safe haven in the market many, many years ago in 2011. It got uh, involved in the market, and I think it changed the safe haven status of the currency. I wonder whether this is that pivotal moment. We have an expert waiting in
0: the wings on Asia, so let's get to him. Right, Okay. Standard charters expects annual income growth to uh, slightly exceed its previously stated 5.7% growth. The British lenders reported a 5% rise in pre-tax underlying quarterly profit, saying it had a strong start to the year despite a volatile macro environment. The volatility continues, of course. Stan Chart says it remains alert to the impact of COVID-19 in its key Asian markets. Andy Halford, CFO of Standard Chartered, joins us now. Andy, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much indeed for waiting waiting for us. Um, Look, just give us the broad brush on how your business is fitting into these extraordinary global events we're seeing at the moment.
2: Yeah, well, thank you and and good morning. So we've had a great start to the year. Um, The top line is up 9% on an underlying basis. It's actually our highest quarterly print of income for about seven years. Um, Underlying profit up about 5% and uh, our capital and our returns also um, very, very solid. Um, so, we've seen a lot of market volatility obviously over the last several weeks. I think we have captured um, a very good share of that. And uh, notwithstanding many of the uncertainties that are out, out there, we, we've been really pleased with the start of this year and hence why we've slightly upgraded our full year outlook.
0: Yeah, I've been very interested in your focus in various emerging markets where you're just ditching the ones where you're subscale and really doubling down on the ones where you think the growth is going to be. Can I ask you to comment, though, on what we're seeing on the broader foreign exchange markets as well? Because this massive flight to the dollar isn't just about the carry trade. It's a large part of the carry trade, but it's also about the tensions of interest rates, inflation across Asia, across the globe as well. I just wondered if you could give us some some of your educated thoughts on what we're seeing there.
2: Well, we, we clearly are operating in quite unprecedented times, and particularly on interest rates. Uh, the change in sort of sentiment on interest rates has been sort of changing in front of our eyes, and uh, generally that has been of an upward direction in the in the very near term. Um, for the last couple of years during COVID, it's clearly been a difficult period for many banks with very, very low interest rates. But it does seem like we've got a period ahead when we're going back to pre-COVID levels, um, I think many businesses out there saying, look, it's all very unpredictable, therefore a lot of them wanting to actually um, hedge or fix the, the the rate risk and hence the sort of currency risk that goes with it. That's a large part of what our corporate business does working with our clients to deliver on that. Um, and hence why we have been very, very active in supporting them. Um, but overall, the fact that the rates environment is looking like you know, sort of 3% is not too far away um, when for the majority of the last two years we've been close to 0%. Um, that is both for our clients and for us. You know, that has that got opportunity sitting in it. But also um, we need to be mindful that economic growth and so on. There are clearly questions about how much it will dampen that at the moment. We're not seeing it, but obviously we need to be very mindful of that.
1: Andy, it's Karen jumping in. There's a lot in the results that reminds me of what we've seen from the other banks that have been reporting this quarter uh, from the rate uh, tightening environment to what we're seeing in terms of client behaviour. I just want to move on to the wealth management numbers down 17%. The largest market, Hong Kong, down 26%. Can you just talk about some of that client activity and the sentiment you're witnessing at this point?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a good point. So what we have seen is great strength on the corporate side with the rates, as I've just referred to, um, but some offset from that in the wealth management space. So about a third of our income in wealth management we make in Hong Kong. And during the first quarter, we had sort of two effects. One was uh, COVID, which obviously peaked during that period, and uh, there were many restrictions um, on people being able to leave their homes and upon our um, relationship managers being able to meet clients. And secondly, with the markets being very turbulent, you know, people do tend, I think, just to sit on the sidelines a bit to see where the market will settle. So we did have a first quarter that was tougher in Hong Kong, particularly a little bit in some of the Asia, the northern Asia markets as well. And hence the numbers Uh, Was slightly down a year ago, albeit they were actually closest to the levels we've had in the last two or three quarters. So hopefully now the restrictions in Hong Kong are lifting. We'll start over a period of time, not immediately, but start to see the momentum um, coming back in the wealth management space. But clearly that has been more depressed in the first quarter, you're right.
1: Andy, when it comes to risk-weighted assets, this is an area we've also seen a reversal here, $261 billion down, um, or at $261 billion, I should say, down $10 billion, uh, since uh, the 31st of December 2021. Is this client stepping back, saying they don't want to take on more risk, they don't want loans at this stage, or is the bank being more cautious given the environment?
2: Um, It's largely things that we as a bank have done. So our underlying growth in volumes with customers, we're actually about $4 billion um, up on our notional lending. But what we have done in the period is we have been through to look at the risk-weighted assets, to root out some of the lower returning situations, to, to optimise. And as you say, we are down $10 billion in one quarter and that, in fact, is even more significant than it sounds because underlying that, there are about $10 billion of increases. Um, from regulatory changes, from the growth in the business, but we actually took 20 billion of other risk-rated assets out. So we feel that that actually has been really one of the highlights of the period. So no, it's not lack of demand out there. It is ruthless management of risk-rated assets and making sure that we're really optimising those wherever we can. That has helped us with the CET1, the capital ratio print, which has been very, very close to the top of our range, which again is very strong.
0: Andy, I know you've got a heart out now, so we'll let you go. Thanks very much indeed for that. Uh, Always a pleasure speaking to you, Sir Andy Halford, CFO of Standard Charter. Stand chart.
1: Uh, Let's push on to to, what we've been witnessing on gas prices as the European Union has warned energy companies they must stop relying on Russia for gas after Gazprom blocked suppliers to Poland and Bulgaria for not paying in rubles. Benchmark prices soared as much as 20% in yesterday's trade before stabilising. You can see we are reversing morning session. Commission President Ursula von der Leyen struck a defiant tone, saying the EU's response to the blockage would be immediate, united and coordinated. It comes as no surprise that the Kremlin uses fossil fuels to try to blackmail us. This is something the European Commission has been preparing for in close coordination and solidarity with member states and international partners. The Kremlin failed once again in his attempt to sow division among member states. The era of Russian fossil fuel in Europe is coming to an end. Europe is moving forward on energy issues.
0: I'll just jump in briefly. I've got another read on Unipur in a minute. But this is exactly what Ukraine wants as well. They want... Which is ironic, isn't it? So the Russians don't really want to stop the flow to Bulgaria, to Poland, to Germany, to Italy. But they've they've gone with the first two as well because they're the smaller players trying to pick them off and divide uh, the Eurozone as well. So the the Russians don't really want to stop it. The Europeans don't really want them to stop it. The only ones who really want this to happen are are the Ukrainians. Because Zelensky's been saying for a long time, stop financing the Putin-Kremlin war machine by buying Russian gas and oil. So he said, stop buying Russian gas and oil. That has, of course, enormous implications and logistics issues and economic implications, industrial implications, job implications. But Zelensky wants them, the Europeans to stop buying this so that he have not got the financing uh, for the Russian economy as mm-hmm. well. Russia doesn't really want to do it. Europe doesn't really want it to happen, but the Ukrainians do. So, h- how does this, how's this make sense from a Russian point of view? Cutting them off. They, well, they surely right. they should take every ruble or every buck or every euro while they still can before the europeans switch anyway
1: well the russians can't simply just sell the product elsewhere given the infrastructure comes into europe but i think one of the interesting points was around poland which is not receiving the product now from from russia that it would get the product from other sources but but one of them but one of them being germany but where are the germans getting the product from russia so it was almost like a third party situation right
0: uh this is a crisis that some of us saw coming years ago. Some of us have been talking about this for years as well. And dare I say it, previous administrations have been talking about it. Whatever, And I'll say it one more time. Whatever anyone thinks of Donald Trump, and let's be honest about it, he's like Marmite. You either love him or you hate him. Very few people on the fence about Donald Trump. He was 100% right about the European energy policy compared with the European security policy. And Frau Merkel... And others thought that Germany could woo Russia in by tying them in economically, especially via energy, especially via the economy. Frau Merkel's policy now looks like a complete and utter failure on this front as well, and actually a more hawkish policy on energy security should have been done a long while ago. And I'm not saying that the Europeans should have danced the American tune, because we all know that Trump's pitch was also about supplying more expensive US LNG into Europe as well. So we do know that there was a, uh, a real politique about what Trump was saying, but actually yeah, the tenet of what he was narrative. saying was absolutely spot on as well. And we've, we've all known for a long time. Buying most of your energy from a potentially hostile state is not the smartest thing to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in hindsight, I think Not hindsight, Karen, back in now.
0: foresight. There were loads of us. I, I won't buy that. And people saying, well, it was a dip. Do you know the line that's come out in, the, in this crisis, which I think is absolute tosh, is that it was a different Putin we were dealing with then. The Kremlin's become more hawkish, the Kremlin has changed. Well, that Kremlin hasn't changed. It was there to see in 2014. It was there to see in two Chechen wars. It was there to see in Transnistria. It was there to see in Moldova as well. Kremlin and Putin hasn't changed. His policy on Novorossiya, on a broader expansion of his sphere of influence, has been there for decades. I think
1: Putin did play a very clever game, though. I mean, he wasn't very clear about his actions Half the time. And you may recall Hadley Gamble, our colleague spoke to him late last year, and effectively he was pushing back against weaponizing the gas and, and oil product. But of course what we've seen now. This is they, the man who, very who's, much his turned the down right?
0: many, many times across Eastern Europe, across Ukraine, across various countries when he's had wars. Also. So this is the man who's never weaponized energy?
1: Yeah, but if you think about what you just said, that he is motivated also to continue to sell into Europe. And so we're, in many ways, this is self-harm now. And nobody really assumed that he would go down the path of harming his own nation. And and here we are. We are seeing the, the consequences of the, that action. And I think that was what was unanticipated at, at a, a global level. If he changes it's the contract. the
0: Europeans are going to run even quicker. We've seen what the Germans have done on defence. We've seen what they potentially are going to do with a new energy vendor as well. I think this is fascinating, and I think the Russians have made a very interesting move. Not for me to say they've made a mistake, very interesting move. A, trying to change the contract to rubles from other currencies, and B, then uh, shutting off supply as well, because countries refuse to abide by those change of contracts as well. It's going to be very expensive for everyone involved.
1: Well, the difference this time around is that they're now an unpredictable, unreliable supplier. We're not seeing that in other situations yeah. for the likes of Germany and other major buyers. They'd always had this product coming through no matter what was going on in terms of Cold War or pushback and geopolitics, but this time is different. I think that does change the, the future of
2: Russia. Russia I hear what you're
0: saying. Do you know what? It's just beginning to get warm out there, although it's two degrees in my car this morning. As soon as it starts getting cooler again, what are we talking, September, October, that the- is when this crisis is really, really going to hit. Mm. Meanwhile, Uniper has told a German newspaper it will continue to pay for Russian gas in euros, but to a Russian bank, here we go, this might be a solution but to a Russian bank instead of one based in Europe. This after the European Commission said buyers of Russian gas would not be in breach of sanctions as long as the payment is cleared before it's converted to rubles. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, therein lies a potential solution to this as well. If you have a bank which is based in Russia, which is paid in the original currency and can then convert it themselves. Uh, Eni is also reportedly trying to circumnavigate the ruble requirement, entering precautionary talks to open accounts at Gazprom Bank. There's the point. Right, the euro remains under pressure again. Look at that, 105. A lot of people talking about parity. I remember when they were talking about 120, and all the geniuses out there in Forex world told us that the euro was going to the moon and the dollar was going to suffer because of also its, its various deficits as well. Interesting to see if any of the Forex experts who told us about 120 still believe in the bullishness of the euro. Anyway, we will discuss with the Bank of Italy Governor Ignazio Visco later on the show. Do not miss that first on interview. It's coming up with Karen and I and Mr. Visco at 9.15 Central European Time. Uh, we've also got a, a fantastic guest for you in the show. They call street signs as well. Giuliana Rossano will talk to bulgaria's energy minister that's alexander nikolov uh, 10 central european time
1: and also ahead on the show meta shares surge after a beats a key metric but clouds appear on the horizon for the social media giant we'll have more on that next and for plenty on those moves in forex markets including the slide in the japanese yen you can check out the Sportbox podcast Pinterest stock rose in extended trade after the company reported first-quarter earnings that beat analysts' expectations. Revenue at the social media giant surged to $575 million, but the company added it was losing monthly active users, posting a 9% decline from the same period a year ago. Pinterest also flagged it was facing a difficult macro environment in Europe due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has impacted many of its advertisers. Meta shares, though, jumped over 18% in after-hours trade, as the Facebook parent company topped on first-quarter earnings estimates. The social media giant also beat forecasts for daily active users, with almost 2 billion people using the company's apps each day. But Meta reported a slowdown in revenue growth, which rose 7% over the period. This is the first time in the company's history as a listed entity that it has reported revenue growth in single digits. Speaking to analysts after the results, the COO Sheryl Sandberg said that while the environment is tough, the company remains resilient. We have highly engaged platforms. We still have very important data that is first party that we are able to use to target. We're working on measurement solutions and we're also working on things without the industry. So we think while these times are challenging over the long run, we do have a very strong competitive advantage when you look across the opportunities advertisers have to advertise both offline and online. Let's get to John Blank, Chief Equity Strategist at Zaxx. John, this was much better than the market had anticipated. There were huge concerns after Netflix had lost subscribers in the quarter. And if you look at the numbers, uh, I'm not sure where they came from, but what, up 6% from a year ago uh, across the Meta platform for Facebook itself, which is uh, you know, a fairly old social media network these days, also up 4%. What do you make of the subscriber build?
4: Uh, you know, one of the places they have a strong business outside of uh, North America and Europe is India. So I expect they're making some inroads in India, and uh, that's probably the spot. I, I think China is not, uh, you know, a good market for them. To when they when we talk Asia Pacific for the, for that company, and that is where their strong growth is is India.
1: What also jumps out to me is the market's absolute fascination with subscriber numbers. You'd think that given these uh, businesses are becoming a little bit more mature these days, the focus would be on revenues, it would be earnings, it would be how the businesses are monetizing what they have. But still, the focus is just fixated on the subscribers. Is that the wrong focus?
4: Probably not. I mean, if you think about it from an advertiser perspective, you just you threw that 2 billion number of daily active users. You can throw the 3 billion number out for monthly active users. That is such a big number for the advertising base. And, And that's what Sheryl Sandberg is talking about in terms of sustainable advantage. I mean, think of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, there's fractions of, of, of eyeballs compared to what Facebook can offer you. And then they have the, the capabilities that a Facebook page offers an advertiser. You know, they, They've built out their video production abilities there. They've got all this data she mentioned, which is true. They can, they can basically target people better and get better re- revenue from people. So they have a they just have a really good operating model for advertising. I mean, you can see it. I mean, if you think about it from just a shareholder perspective, they make $14 a share next year. That's double what Apple will make per share.
0: Uh, John, this is a company that is failing ignominiously to monetize any other form of income as well. Reality Labs had a net loss of $3 billion, $695 million of revenue as well. Profits in the quarter were down 21%. Are we getting overexcited about the numbers when actually it was probably just a positional trade yesterday that sent the shares up so much?
4: Well, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, 206, per share from one, you know, 175 was a was going to be a short covering bounce off the last 10 days of trading that were so negative. So I think that's just been totally overread. People just bought into the idea that you close the shorts on the on the on the story of the the earnings report itself. So I totally agree with that. As far as the you know their their Oculus Quest, you know, this this new VCR thing they're rolling out, they're putting an uh, actual physical store in their their headquarters on May the 9th, which is, you know, uh, less than two weeks away, and if you look into that that whole Oculus uh, play, it in it, the store it it looks almost identical to an Apple store. So there's some Apple envy going on here with, with Zuckerberg, and and basically you pointed out, you know, in a quarter when you get 700 million in revenues from this and three billion in losses, just to, let's do the math on that. Uh, Seven hundred million in revenues per year is three billion. That's going to be, you know, like they've already done, 97%. It's going to be 3% of a business and 90% of these going to be their advertising revenues from their big base businesses in Messenger, you know, WhatsApp, Instagram, and mm-hmm. Facebook. So he hasn't solved the problem. He's he's basically done what Apple did with Nest. He's got a small uh, physical product space that he's personally interested in. He's spending 30% of his profits on it, and it's just not going to be enough to move the dial. So he didn't answer the question where the growth is coming from and then all the other stuff the web3 stuff you know trying to put tokens on the on the page trying to put real and play get more videos like tiktok all this stuff doesn't get the engagement that that the standalone cryptos do and the and the tiktok does so he hasn't basically figured out how to monetize further the base business and this oculus thing is is more of a fad that he likes and it's more you know one thing i noticed when i looked at all these big companies is If you look at founder based companies, the Reed Hastings, you know, the the, you know, the Jack Dorsey's and and the Facebook, you know, Zuckerberg, you get five, six earnings misses out of 15 earnings reports. You don't get that out of a Microsoft an Apple or a Google. So the other problem is Zuckerberg. He is just in the way he he has been there too long. No one can move strategy off his dial. He's the guy and, and he's got 500 agendas and that's starting to show through, too.
0: John, um, I'd love to carry on talking to about uh, Meta with you, but I want to ask you another question because I've only got one left. Um, do you think Elon Musk is actually going to buy Twitter? Um, a lot of people talking about it as the AOL Time Warner moment as well. I got to say, I am deeply skeptical that this man's going to follow through with this.
4: Well, I think you know what's happened to the Tesla shares. You know, this this deal depends on Tesla shares being you know a put up for for collateral, and and that you know that's The thing I'm watching is every time you know the share price goes down, everybody gets worried that the deal's not going to go through, and and this is the problem. I mean, I I I think he's trying to see Twitter like a Facebook, but it's a forty billion market cap company versus Facebook, which is five hundred billion. So what he thinks, I think, is there's just a ton of data in Twitter that he can embed in a in a smart car system, a smart news system, a smart panel, and get some kind of leverage out of it, but. If you start to look into that, the hassles of running a major social media platform, the thing makes basically no money. It's barely a dollar share in earnings. It's not going to be a Tesla. It's been sitting around at that level, you know, the $50 level or less for five, six years. This is not a company. you know. It even has a net negative profit margin. I don't see what he, he has in play that's going to turn this thing around. He likes it in a chaotic way. But I just... So I just think, yeah, I think people can start talking him out of it. And I think, it, you know, the, the distraction, again, of, of a guy running five businesses or how many businesses you want to call it is ridiculous. And I think he's going to realize this, the sheer pressure, the scrutiny of Twitter on him is just not going to be worth it. So I'm with you. I think it's going to fall apart. Uh you know, he's going to get over it and he's going to get tired of all the, all the negative scrutiny. Yeah, I hear you.
0: John, look, thanks for staying up for us. I've got to leave it there. But let's chat again soon about all these issues. I know Karen's champing to ask you more as well. I have deep scepticism and you just endorsed it as well. Uh, plus the fact, my kids, and I don't know if they're Generation Alpha, Zeds, or even Zoom boomers. Well, no, not boomers, are they? They're uh, millennials. None of them None of them would touch Twitter or Facebook with a barge pole. Thanks, John. Uh, John joined not- us from Zaxx. Uh, Charlotte, uh, do you use Twitter or uh, Facebook, Charlotte? I know you use Facebook, actually.
3: I'm afraid Twitter, I'm from the older generation, I guess. (laughs) You're not that
0: old, (laughs) not compared to some of us. Anyway, you're here to talk about Pernod Ricard, I believe.
3: Yes, their Q3 numbers have just uh, hit the wires there, and it's a set of numbers that is better than expected there for Pernod Ricard with a bit of sales, uh, Q3 sales at 2.447. So that's above expectations. Organic sales growth to stood uh, were up 20%. And I mentioned a positive forex impact. Like looking at the different parts of the business, the USA, which is the largest market for Pernod Ricard, sales there were up 23% in the third quarter. In China, sales were up 8% in the Q3. And they mentioned previously already a softer Chinese New Year. And of course, that's where a lot of the focus from investors will be when there's a call later on with the CFO of the potential impact of the COVID situation in China with Shanghai already being locked down, potentially Beijing uh, being next. So there will be a lot of attention on the comments there on what it could mean for the future of the business uh, there. Europe, they mentioned an excellent growth there with sales up 20% in Q3. They mentioned, of course, that travel retail is having a rebound, a reopening of travel, apart from Chinese uh, tourists, of course, but they mentioned a positive impact of the return of travel. Of course, the return of hospitality, the very final restrictions being uh, lifted as well. So uh, outside of China, travel retail up 23% in Q3. Uh, within the different portfolios, their strategic international brands, so that's Jameson and Absolute Voka, for example, they said we were up 20%. So they mentioned this uh, interim dividend of 1.66, 1.56 per share, and they confirm a guidance, because up until now, they mentioned they were expecting a strong uh, sales growth in 2022, but they hadn't given a precise number. But well, they given it this morning? They expect a fully organic growth in profit from recurring operations up 17% for this year. So for this is Q3, of course, there's just one more quarter, and they finally give a number of expectations. That will calm investors, because again, they are worried about the situation in China and the potential impact. So if they would given a guidance without a number, it means things could have been worse than expected. The fact that they give a number here uh, probably will be very assuring for investors because they have seen, of course, you remember last year, uh, the shares were up 34 percent because of all the reopening, the return of hospitality. Pernodica are very much benefiting from this. This t- year to date, Pernodica shares are down 8 percent because, of course, concern of the war in Ukraine and the Covid situation in China. So the fact that they giving this specific number for their outlook uh, will be very assuring for investors. Guys,
1: Charlotte, thank you very much for that. Uh, I remember, Steve, there was a day when a lot of the big drinks companies would rely on all the sales to China and, of course, to some of the other emerging markets, Russia being one of them. But hasn't the world changed these days? Diversification is quite key when it comes to strategy for these companies now. Yeah,
0: yeah, but I'm sure they've got more margin power than, than a lot of companies out there. You know, certainly these expensive whiskies and wines, and, and to, to a certain degree, the craft beers you can charge a premium compared to a lot of the other uh, uh, the, uh, the products which aren't at the premium end.
1: Yeah, I've got to say, I think uh, some of the executives from these drinks companies will be spending more time in various different parts of the world trying to ensure that there is a good spread so they the protected just in case.
0: Yeah. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
1: Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.